hey there, and welcome back to very nearly the last Cory Doctorow podcast of the year. I am going to San Diego Comic-Con next weekend, and so I will not be recording a podcast then. And the following weekend I will, and then after that I go to Europe for work, and I stay there for Christmas. And I'm hoping to get a Christmas podcast out with my daughter Posey, as is our tradition. It will be a very short one. And then after that, I come back and I have my left hip surgically altered. I'm getting my second hip replacement. And so I think I've got one more after this until probably February, apart from the shorty with the kid. And so in advance, happy Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, happy Yule, happy whatever it is you celebrate, happy another year behind us and maybe better years in our future. In a very self-interested way, I will point out that this is your last chance, probably in the next week or so, to buy signed, personalized books from Dark Delicacies here in Burbank, darkdel.com. They have stacks of my books that are signed, and then if I'm still in town when you order one and you want it inscribed as a gift or just a treat for yourself, I can pop in and inscribe for you. They're literally around the corner from my house. So if you did want to get one of those as a lovely gift for a friend or family member and to support a nice indie bookstore and a writer whose podcast you listen to sometime, by all means, go ahead and do that. Books make excellent gifts. So as I mentioned, I'm going to San Diego Comic-Con over Thanksgiving weekend. I'll be speaking on a panel called The Kids Are Kinda Alright on November the 28th. That's the Sunday. And I'm going to do a signing beforehand. And then I'm probably going to pop into the panel signing afterwards just for like 10 minutes and then boot out of there as fast as my legs will carry me because I got a train to catch. The last train out of San Diego back to Burbank goes at four o'clock and the panel ends at three uh, and the train station's pretty close, but I don't want to cut it too close. And then, as I mentioned, I'm heading to Europe. So I'm going to be at the Internet Governance Forum in Warsaw on December the 10th. I'm sure most of you listening are not in Warsaw. Some of you might be, but it'll also be live streamed. And there will be a video recording of it, which will be on the intertubes. And I will link to those in Pluralistic as the day gets closer. They haven't put up those links yet. All right, well, today's reading is going to be my last medium column, which is called Jam Today, T-O-D-A-Y. You'll find out soon why that is. It's part of the epigraph, which is from uh, Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. And it's another short reading. I apologize for not doing longer podcasts. I figure people maybe like having short podcasts. I know my podcatcher is full of long-ass rambles where two people who I quite like talk to each other for two and a half hours and only manage to produce about an hour's worth of substance in those two and a half hours. I figure 15 minutes of interesting, well-structured essay, flatter myself that it's well-structured, might be something that you enjoy in your weekly podcatcher. I certainly enjoy reading them. I think I become a better writer by reading my work aloud, so this is good practice for me as well. So I will speak to you in two weeks, and then I will speak to you again briefly with the kid from Europe, and then again in February, where I will be a fully bionic, bilaterally hip-replaced fella. All right then, here we go. From doctoro.medium.com, this is Jam Today liberating big tech's hostages on day one. The rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. 
The Red Queen Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There by Lewis Carroll. The new surging antitrust movement has given hope to many who yearn to throw off the yoke of big tech. After all, the tech giant's dominance was attained through solidly illegal conduct, such as anti-competitive mergers and acquisitions, predatory pricing and price fixing. This produced the conditions in which the companies were able to engage in more flagrant illegal conduct, including unambiguous multi-billion dollar acts of fraud. But antitrust is slow. The last big antitrust case with major consequences was the breakup of AT&T in 1982. Notionally, this was the result of eight years of litigation, but in truth, AT&T was first sanctioned for abusing its monopoly in 1913, 69 years before it was finally broken up. Why did it take most of a century to break up this notorious, abusive, nationally loathed monopolist? Simple. Companies seek monopoly power because monopolies are able to juice their profits by raising prices, suppressing wages, capturing regulators, and externalizing their costs. Then, monopolies can mobilize these profits, these monopoly rents, to tie up the judicial system so that any attempt to regulate them is beaten back in court. They can also buy off regulators, pay for corrupt research that cast doubt on their power, and establish themselves as part of the state, as AT&T did, making an ally out of the Pentagon by becoming central to the U.S. invasion of Korea. Take IBM. The company spent 12 years in court fighting a breakup order. In each of those 12 years, Big Blue's legal bills were more than the salaries of the entire DOJ antitrust division combined. IBM won because all those lawyers managed to delay the process until the arrival of Ronald Reagan, who brought most antitrust enforcement to a 40-year halt. Thankfully, we are finally emerging from this dark age. Breaking up a monopoly is much harder than preventing one from forming because the power of a monopoly can be used to fight breakups. The best time to fight the tech monopolies was 20 years ago. The second best time, of course, is now. Which is not to say that there aren't benefits to antitrust action during their progress. There are even benefits to failed antitrust enforcement. There's plenty of evidence that companies' internal deliberations are influenced by antitrust as execs seek to avoid giving enforcers more ammunition or respond to the trauma of litigation by flinching away from tactics similar to the ones that brought down antitrust enforcers' wrath before. Thus, even though IBM was spared from breakup, it experienced a major cultural and tactical change to the benefit of the industry and the world. IBM knew that the DOJ disfavored tying software to its hardware, so it tapped a little startup called Micro-Soft, they dropped the dash later, to provide DOS for the PC. It knew that blocking-compatible hardware made the DOJ furious, so it sat back while PC clones proliferated. Likewise, Microsoft's seven-year turn in the antitrust barrel did not lead to a breakup, but it did cause the company to abandon the illegal tactics it used to kill Netscape, sparing Google from the same fate. Now that Google and Facebook and Apple are all in the antitrust crosshairs, it's possible that in the coming years they too will experience cultural shift brought on by the trauma of endless regulatory colonoscopies and learn to flinch away from the illegal tactics that hurt tech users today. In Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, the Red Queen tells Alice there is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. The threat of antitrust enforcement once kept tech monopolists in check.
and it might do so again. But what about now? How can we have jam today? That's where interoperability comes in. The harms that big tech inflicts on its users aren't just the result of a lack of competition. They're the result of lock-in. Investors don't fund challengers to big tech because they know that switching from big tech to a rival comes with too high a price. You might hate Facebook, but you love the communities, friends, and customers you hang out with there, and there's no practical way to get them all to quit at once and follow you to a spunky new startup. Big tech companies grew through network effects. People join Facebook because their friends are there, and once they do, other people sign up to talk to them. App makers create reasons to buy an iPhone because of all the iPhone customers, and each new app is a potential lure for more customers to buy iPhones. But while network effects are how companies got big, it's not how they stay big. The thing that keeps unhappy customers from quitting for arrival is switching costs, the economist's name for all the stuff you have to give up to go somewhere else, losing your Facebook friends, walking away from your investment in apps and media, and so on. The tech companies know this, and they devote enormous engineering, legal, and commercial effort to raising switching costs. They build devices that use technology to block interoperators. They sue interoperators that go around these blocks. They fight any legal action that would make it harder to sue interoperators and engage in predatory commercial behavior that keeps interoperators' products out of customers' hands. Interoperability is how we get jammed today. The point isn't that when you go to the shop, you see a million kinds of printer ink and have no way to tell which one is best for your needs. It's that when the manufacturer tries to capture you in a switching cost trap that forces you to buy ink at inflated prices, you can go elsewhere. It's that when the manufacturer decides not to support your computer because it's old or new or runs Linux or whatever, a third party can supply you with a driver without fearing IP liability from the manufacturer. It's that when the manufacturer goes bust, third parties can service your printer and supply you with replacement parts, ink, and whatever else it takes to keep it running until you decide that it's time to get rid of it. The U.S. government could give us interop on much shorter timescales than other pro-competitive remedies. They can use the purchasing power of the state to make interop affordances a standard feature of good products by refusing to procure any product or service that lacks these. A government wouldn't buy a hospital whose power, water, and networking details were held secret by the contractor that built it, or where the contractor required a restrictive covenant, requiring the government to source all repairs, upgrades, and modifications from that original builder. It wouldn't let the firm prohibit it from auditing the engineering math used to calculate the load stresses on the hospital's structure. The fact that our public money is routinely directed to digital products and services that come with equivalent strictures is an aberration. The U.S. government has a very long history of requiring interop in procurement, stretching back at least as far as the Union Army, which required firearms manufacturers to adopt standard tooling, replacement parts, and ammo for rifles. This style of procurement should be the presumption, and any variation should be subjected to strict scrutiny and auditing. Interop affordances will ripple out to the private sector. If a city school board can't use Google Classroom unless it has APIs for third-party components, then private schools will get those APIs. If a federal, state, or local motor pool's procurement rules require that manufacturers make diagnostic and repair info available to third-party mechanics and abjure the use of software locks to prevent third-party parts, then every motorist will be able to buy a car whose diagnostic and parts are available to their local independent mechanic. Multiply this by all the things the U.S. public sector buys— 
phones, laptops, network switches, cloud services, sensors, etc., and you create a commercial and normative expectation that the products we all use in our private lives will all be designed so that we can adapt them to our individual circumstances and requirements. This is Jam Today, an overnight revolution that can run in parallel to litigation and other enforcement action. By liberating the hostages of big tech's walled gardens, interoperability will make it harder to extract monopoly rents, depriving the tech giants of the capital they'd otherwise use to draw out litigation and exhaust the DOJ and FTC. We can't wait seven years, Microsoft, or 12 years, IBM, or 69 years, AT&T, to humble big tech so that it no longer harms the public interest. What's more, we don't have to. We can have jam today. All right, then. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Have a great Thanksgiving. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynek Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>